Would you take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 17, and our text this morning will be verses 20 through 21. John 17 is a tremendously rich chapter. It's the true Lord's Prayer, and by that I mean this is where we actually get to peek into what the Lord Jesus himself prayed and how the Lord Jesus himself would pray. And so it truly is the, the real Lord's Prayer is the prayer that Jesus gives. It's the prayer that Jesus gives prior to his crucifixion. And in this we see several different themes that come through these 26 verses in this chapter. We see Jesus prays for his glorification. He prays for his disciples. He prays for protection for his disciples. He prays for the sanctification of his disciples. He prays for the unity of the future church. And he prays that his disciples will see his glory. There's one overarching theme in that, and that is that Jesus is praying for his church. He is praying for his disciples. And this morning, we're going to focus in on one theme, and that is that theme that is so rich in this passage, which is the theme of unity. Unity itself is a precarious grace that we are given by the Lord. And while we are given it and we are told that it is an established reality, it is something that can be destroyed overnight and suddenly and unexpectedly. We know that unity is established in Christ. We know that it is a true reality for the Christians, yet it is something we are called to strive for. It is something that Christ himself prayed for, which means it's always under threat. There's always a potential that unity could be destroyed. And why is it that unity can be destroyed? Very simple answer. We're sinful people. And we congregate together. And because we are sinful people that congregate together, we know that unity as a result of sin can be threatened. Now that's why we always always have to be eager, as Paul writes in Ephesians, to maintain the unity. It's why we always make this a part of our Wednesday prayer list. And so as we look to this new year, let us start this new year as a church with a resolution that we would be eager to maintain the unity that Christ bought with his shed blood. Can we make that a resolution for us as a church to maintain that unity that was bought with Christ's precious blood? So let me read the word of God for you. John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I want us to see four points this morning from this. And then from those four points, we'll see two basic applications. And, And the first is the scope of unity. The second is the grace of unity. The third is the nature of unity. And the fourth is the result of unity. So the scope of unity, as we start, we see in verse 20, where the Lord Jesus in this prayer says, I do not ask for these only. 
And so as he says these only, he's referring specifically to the disciples. The disciples that he had walked with and that he had spent time with, he begins to say of this unity that what he is praying for is specifically for his disciples. In chapter 13, we see the, 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 the very familiar passage where Jesus goes and washes his disciples' feet. And he taught them through that example how to serve one another, how to put one another first, how to love one another. And he does this by washing their feet. And then he gives them this example as, as I have done this, as I have served you, you are to serve one another. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. And so Jesus has given us this example of how we are to maintain this unity through love and through service of one another. And so he begins first with the disciples that he's praying that that which he has given them as an example would be maintained and continued throughout their lives. But he doesn't just stop with the disciples, and this is where we ought to recognize the special nature of verse 20. He says, but also... So he starts off with the disciples, but now he's going to move beyond the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so who is this referring to? Jesus is speaking of the church. In other words, this is what we have to recognize, is that Jesus in this prayer wasn't just specifically praying for the disciples. He was praying for you and I. And he was praying for all those that would be gathered in the name of Christ for the last 2,000 years. Jesus had us in his heart and in his mind and in his prayers as he walked this earth, specifically that we would be united. This, there's a twofold aspect of this. Is the first is this, is that we will continue being united in Christ. And then the second aspect of this is that we will continue with being in unity with one another. And so the fact that he prays for our union with Christ to be maintained is means it's something that can never, ever be destroyed. In fact, John Calvin says, this prayer is a safe harbor, and whoever retreats into it is safe from all danger of shipwreck. What a wonderful thought that we can always look back upon this prayer as assurance that we will always remain in the Lord Jesus Christ. But it goes beyond that. It's that the Lord Jesus was also praying that we would remain in unity with one another. And there's an exclusive nature of this unity. And we have to recognize the exclusivity of it. He says, those who will believe in me through their word... And what does this mean in terms of an exclusive nature of this unity? There's two qualifications of unity. The first is that you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So this unity that Jesus speaks of is reserved for those that are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our common unity that we have as regenerate, that is, born-again Christians. A unity that is common to all those that are saved in Christ. But there's another qualification of it. You'll notice what it is, that you believe in me through their word. And that is, you must believe the right things. The scriptural basis here is their word. 
And here's what we have to recognize, is that this is qualified by the apostolic teaching. We do not have unity, for instance, with Mormons. We don't. They don't believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ that we do. We don't have unity with Islam. We don't have unity with Jehovah's Witnesses. Because they do not believe in the same Lord Jesus Christ that we believe in. So when Jesus is praying for unity, he's praying for those that have a basis of their unity in the very word of God. And specifically, it is the teaching of the apostles. And Jesus promises that the apostles would have accurate teaching in John chapter 16, verse 12, where he says, I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. The Lord Jesus Christ promises the disciples that the Spirit will come to them and teach them all things, that they would have an infallible truth that they could then write down and give it to us that we are now holding in our hands. And so we understand something important about this is that faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by preaching the Word of God. How did you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? through the preaching of the Word of God. And so the qualification that we have of unity is that we believe the right things about the Lord Jesus Christ. And our unity is based upon that. That brings up this question that gets asked often. Why are there so many Christian denominations? This is a particular uh, objection of people that are not Christians. And they see all the disunity in the church. They say, well, you have this church over here, they believe this, this church over here, and it seems like they're always fighting. (laughs) Well, is that really true that we're really fighting? There's a couple of things we have to recognize is that there are tiers of, of things that are of importance for us to believe. There are first-tier things. That is what you believe about the nature of God, the triune God. One being three persons, equal, eternal. And if you don't believe that, then you, 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 you've departed Christianity. There's believing the right things about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he's truly God, truly man, two natures united in one person. And if you don't believe that, you've departed from Christianity. There's the idea of justification by faith alone. That is the very essence of the gospel. Those are the things that we call first essential things. And it doesn't matter if you're Baptist or if you're Methodist or you're Presbyterian or what you are, according to your doctrines of faith, you would agree to those things. In other words, we have great unity in Christendom on those essential things. We have unity in the things that really, truly matter. We would call those, let's say, first-tier things, the essential things that identify us as Christians. I like to think of it usually as the first five or eight points in a confession of faith. And that's where we find, across denominations, unity. 
But then there are second-tier things. That comes with denominational structures. That comes with things like how we view baptism, how we view church governance, how we, we, we would view the pastorate, even. Now, those things don't make us not Christian if we don't agree with them. It just means that we have differences of them, and so we congregate according to those differences. But no one is saying that how you view your church governance excludes you from the kingdom of God. And if they do, that's called a cult, and don't join that church. What we're talking about are those things that where we come to the scriptures, we're both looking at the same scriptures, but we come to different conclusions. And we pray, as Paul prayed, that the Holy Spirit will reveal that to us as well. And so we recognize that there are second-tier issues that do not exclude us from the kingdom of God, but might cause us to congregate under certain banners, if you will. Then there's those third-tier things. What are third-tier things? Well, those are those differences we may have, but exist within the same congregation. And we have differences. We'll talk about different things, and we, we might view different things, uh, different subjects differently. You think of end times. You, you might think of even church structures and stuff like that, or how we do worship. We might have differences in those type of things, but that doesn't separate us at a denominational level. That doesn't separate us at a, at a local church gathering. And unfortunately, and let me just be really crystal clear on this, a lot of people I see have taken what is third tier and raised it to a second tier or even a first tier and made that their test of orthodoxy. And then that becomes their test of unity or disunity about what you believe in end times. Look, if you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning and there will be a literal resurrection of the dead, we're good. That's what our confession of faith states. But if we start to raise elements of that to being a second tier where you might not be in the kingdom, well, then we've just actually done something the Scripture doesn't do. And we've, we've sowed discord as a result of that. But we have to see how we examine what we believe through those three tiers. Essential, the second tier, and tertiary tiers. Now, the result of the fact that we can all come to the Scriptures and, and we all have a copy of the Scriptures and we can read the Scriptures on our own, the result of that we have to recognize is both unity and disunity. Isn't it? It's unity in the sense that we can come to the same truths and it's also disunity that we may have differences in opinions on things. But where do, we, where do we draw the line and where we say this is a matter of fellowship and where this is not a matter of fellowship? That's where we must be careful. So we can have unity with those with whom we disagree, even in second-tier things, because we can agree on mission. We can consider one another Christian siblings and we have the same goals that we want to see the nations reached with the gospel of Christ. But we might find that it's, it's actually more consistent to fellowship or find fellowship where we have agreement on those secondary issues. 
And let me just repeat this. The tertiary issues, that's that third tier, should never be elevated to second or third. And sadly, I mean second or first, and sadly often it is. So, when we see this phrase, they will believe in me through their word, it is referring to those essential elements where we find unity. Now, how important is unity? Well, this leads us to the second point, which is the grace of unity. And unity itself is grace. Because as soon as sin entered into the world, disunity entered. Actually, death entered into the world. It doesn't get any more dissolved in unity than that. And why we see this as a grace of unity is because the Son is asking for it. Notice what he says, I ask. He's asking for this. The Lord Jesus, presumably on his knees before the Father, before he's going to be crucified, is asking the Father that we may be one. So unity, we see, we know from other places in Scripture like Ephesians that unity is established in the shed blood of Christ. It's a a true reality that cannot be broken. If a person is truly in Christ, unity cannot be broken. So that true, ultimate unity is indissoluble. It's an indissoluble reality. However, and what I mean by that is if you are in Christ... The unity that you share with believers is based upon the shed blood of Christ. That cannot be destroyed. But temporal unity can. Temporal unity can be destroyed. It can be lost. It can be threatened. And that's what we have to recognize. Now, as you think about this, Jesus asks for this. Who is asking for this? Jesus is asking for this. When is he asking for this? Prior to his crucifixion. Let that sink in. The eternally begotten Son of God is asking the Father that we be one. He is going to face the horrors of the cross and his concern, what's on his heart and what is on his mind prior to his death was unity. What does this teach us about the importance of unity? Uh, what does this teach us about like how we should prioritize that and how that actually should be determinative of how we act and behave ourselves in the house of God. You know, we oftentimes think, and rightly so, think of Jesus' example of washing the feet of the disciples. And we we say this is Jesus putting others before himself. This is Jesus' example of love, Jesus' example of service, and we rightly emphasize this. But what about this prayer as an example for the priority of our own life? Again, This is prior to the painful death he is going to face. Let me just ask, and this is convicting, I ask myself these questions. How often do you pray for the unity of the church? How often do you pray for unity with those with whom you may have disagreement with? 
You know, every, every Wednesday I write it down on the prayer list, pray for unity. And sometimes I almost feel like uh, maybe we don't have to pray for it this week. Maybe I don't have to pray, put it on the prayer list because they know I say it every single week. Maybe we don't have to say it. But no, look, we, we have to continually be praying for the unity of the church. Christ is praying for it. How much more should we? As a congregated church, when we gather uh, to, to pray corporately, as the Bible tells us to corporately pray. How often do we do it in our own prayer closet? Do we lay aside, and when we think of unity in our actions, do we lay aside our own self-agenda preferences, whatever it may be for the sake of something greater, which is that unity? And that's not saying that we entertain compromise. It's just simply saying and looking at something greater that the church, or that Christ himself has prayed for the church, which is the unity of the church, that we may be, as he says, one. That's the grace of unity, is that the Lord Jesus prays for it. May we pray for it. Now, what's the nature of this unity? I want you to notice in verse 21 the nature of the unity. It's that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is that perfect, harmonious unity. And there is no greater or more perfect unity that exists than the triune God. And as you read this example, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, we enter into the mystery and the incomprehensible truths of God. The Father and the Son are, are distinct, but yet one. Think, think of what we read in, in John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That's distinction, but the Word was God. That's unity. That's oneness. And that's an e eternal oneness. Think of what Jesus says in, in chapter 14 to Philip, in verse 8, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And look at what Jesus' response is. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. It's amazing that Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Let's think about that. Christ is eternally God, is unbreakably and eternally one with the Father. One in essence, one in nature, one in will, one in affections. Just imagine the glorious nature of this thought for one second. If that's our example of unity, one in essence, nature, will, and affection, as the triune God is, yet there's distinction in the personhood. We're all distinct individuals, and let's just for a second shed the individuality that we're told to embrace by our culture. And think about what the Lord Jesus Christ is praying. Just imagine that as a distinct person, that you walk outside of these doors, and as the world sees you, they actually see all of us. They do when we're sinful. 
They do when we're sinful, because what happens when a, a, a known Christian stumbles and falls? All you Christians are like that. So how about our unity be what they see? That when they walk out, when we walk out of these, these doors, that when they see us and they see, they see you as an individual, that they, they see all of us that way, because we're so united. The world is watching our unity. The world is watching to see if we are unity. And that is the unity that Christ prays for. And here's the reality of this idea of unity. If the triune God is our example of unity, it means we will never reach the unity we are called to have. Let that sink in. If we ever stop and say, you know, right now... Our church is really united. We say, praise God for that, right? But that doesn't mean we're as united as we could or should be. Because if our example is the highest example you can have, an infinite example, it means we will never actually achieve that perfect unity this side of heaven. So it means we must always be eager to maintain it, to strive for it. We must always continually, never ceasing to strive for that unity that Christ prays for. Now I want you to notice the fourth thing, and that is the result of unity. And it's this, in verse 21, halfway through, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And that phrase, so that, tells us the purpose. Why? Why are we to be united? So that, Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You think about what Jesus has already said in John chapter 13 where he says this in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So he says already that our love is something that's observable. Our love is something that people will see. And then here he says is that our unity is actually a key to our evangelistic witness. What happens when you see a church split? It's not confined in these walls. In fact, it goes out to all, with all those that, that are involved with that. It usually spreads. What does that do for the witness of the church? All they do in that church is fight. But yet Christ, and they say Christ came to save them. Christ came to bring peace. Christ came to unite these people together of, of various backgrounds. But all I see them doing is fighting. What does that do for our witness? It destroys it. The very mission that we're given, the very purpose for which we exist is to see the, the nations call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that they may worship him. But unity is that, that key 
example of what we say we believe, we truly believe it. So it means that our unity is actually observable. It's like our love. It is the backing of the message that we proclaim that in Christ we have been set free and we are united in Him. Now, let's apply this. What are some impediments to unity? The first is most obvious, and and it may seem so obvious, why do we even need to mention it? It's that oftentimes in a local church, you can have saved and unsaved congregating together. Now, we, we, no one joins this church apart from a profession of faith. And so it's the assumption, and to the best of our abilities, I, I myself or none of the deacons have an, an ability, nor do you, to peer into someone's heart and say, yep, that's a new heart of the new covenant. But but no one joins this church apart from a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a right understanding of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that there there can't be within a local church, even with that understanding that there could be unsaved and saved as part of the same church. In fact, 1 John seems to make it clear they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. And so we see, recognize that within a body of people, there could be believers and unbelievers mixed. Now, the true church is not mixed. The true church is only made up of believers, of the regenerate. But in the visible church, you may have saved and unsaved. And what we see is Jesus wasn't praying for the unsaved, but Jesus was praying for the saved. And we know this from examples in church history and in scriptures themselves. The unsaved can wreak havoc on the church. In fact, Paul even warns the elders of Ephesus of this very fact in Acts chapter 20. Paul said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. In among you, those that are there, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul was warning that that can exist and that can happen Within a church. And so the most and first obvious impediment to unity is the idea that there could be saved and unsaved together. Will the unsaved have the same goals and affections as the saved? No, because they do not have the mind of Christ. So they cannot. And so there will be a a threat to it in that. But there's also a greater threat that's more closer to home that we all that we all actually deal with, that is pride. Demanding one's own way is always a threat to unity. And if we say, I don't have pride, guess what we just established we have? You think about the whole letter to the the church of Philippi. It It was probably written because of disunity that was beginning with two ladies. 
Philippians 4.2, I treat Euodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Why did he write the letter of Philippians? It's where we have the, the richest statement of the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and why were we given that rich piece of Scripture in Philippians? Because of disunity. That's why the letter was written. When you read any of the letters of Paul, at some point you get a hint of something on unity within the church. And it usually stems from demanding our own way rather than just simply submitting to the true shepherd of the church, the chief shepherd of the church, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are under the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only can pride cause it, but so can doctrinal confusion can cause disunity in a church. Jesus in his prayer in John chapter 17 and verse 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so the idea of truth as being a basis for unity, when there's doctrinal confusion that emerges, then there's automatically going to be disunity. The commentator D.A. Carson says, this can only mean that Jesus, that the means Jesus expects his father to use as he sanctifies his son's followers is the truth. That's an incredible statement. The means that Christ prays for the Father to use and sanctify us is truth. What is the church called? The pillar and the buttress of truth. What we are founded upon is truth. And so where there's a departure from what is truth, it automatically invites confusion. You think of the importance of confessions, statements of faith, and creeds. The modern church has almost all but abandoned the common statements of faith and removed itself far from the past. There was a time in churches where it would be very common to just read the Apostles' Creed at the beginning of the service. Read the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed. It would be oftentimes common to know of a confession of faith and ascribe to one of the major confessions of faith. Go search church websites and look at their confessions of faith. See what they confess. Oftentimes it's divorced from anything that's historic Christianity. Or it's something that's accepted and adopted, but never, ever looked at again. It becomes just a dusty old confession sitting on a shelf somewhere that's never considered. That will invite disunity. That will always destroy people if they do not have a common confession. Doctrinal confusion abounds itself, and it's particularly difficult today with podcasts, YouTube, and blogs, where so many uh, self-proclaimed public theologians or pastors become very influential over a congregation of people and lead people astray. 
And now, whereas one person was once united or a group of people were once united because of a, a popular preacher that doesn't know who you are, doesn't pray for you, isn't there for you in tragedy, actually becomes your discipler. That will invite disunity in the church. Not only doctrinal confusion, but mixed priorities. And it's natural in a group of people that there, there will be closer relationships and different things that spark us. But when priorities are the same, you will find greater unity. But when we're confused about priorities, you'll have disunity. If the Word of God is a priority, then learning the Word of God, talking about the Word of God, studying the Word of God will create more opportunity for unity and discussion and growth together. But if we have different priorities in our lives and the Word of God is not that priority, then when the Word of God is brought to bear upon our lives, it wasn't a priority then and won't be a priority now. It's always a threat to disunity. We, we, could, we could spend the rest of the week talking about impediments to unity, but what are some keys to unity? Well, we start with where we began with impediments. The key to unity is the Lord Jesus Christ, our union with Christ, a common union that we were bought by the blood of Christ and we did not earn it. We all stand on equal footing in need of God's grace. None of us is greater or more deserving than God's grace than the other. We're actually closer to being closer to the, the, to the serial killer than we are to Christ in terms of our ethical life. None of us have earned God's grace. And so we have to start there with the recognition that we are all united by the same thing, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. But another key to unity is, is our doctrine and our confession, a common confession that we make. Why the big deal about confession? Don't we just, aren't we all just united by the Bible? Yeah, amen, absolutely. But if someone asked you this question, think through this with me. If someone asked you, what do you believe about the Bible? Would you just throw them the Bible and say, read this? No, of course not. You would explain it to them. That's your confession of faith. We have a common confession, and we recognize that in our understanding of things, that this is actually a process of growth that we are to have. In fact, Jesus says this in verse 23 of John 17, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. They may become perfectly one. And if you look at that as the end goal of where we will, once, where we will be one day, it means that we're not there yet, but we're continually growing. And so while we have unity that exists, the Lord Jesus tells us it must always be increasing. This is why Christ himself has given the church teachers to guide the church. He says this in, in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Christ has gifted us for this very means. We see 
This idea of coming to the Word of God and letting it bear upon us and learning it. Think of Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the Word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. You might think of that verse as people hearing Paul's message, going home and studying the Word of God. That's not what it says. Those are plural pronouns. That is a gathered group of people looking at the Word of God together. It wasn't Lone Ranger Christianity that made them noble. What made them noble as a church where they identified themselves coming together to test and see if these things were true. That is a key to unity. There's a third key to unity, and that is right understanding of worship. There has to be a right understanding of worship. The first thing we start with in worship is that it is commanded by God. And we see this so clearly in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as does the habit of some, some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So does Christ command you to gather with the church to, to worship? Yes. It's not an option he gives. You can, you can gather and worship. Obviously, we recognize there are exceptions with illness and things like that. But, but on the whole, if you, if, you can, if, you, if you can be in worship, Christ commands it. But we, we have to recognize that not only in this is what worship is. Worship is a response to God's word. And specifically, Scripture teaches us these five things are supposed to be in worship. He tells us how to worship him. Sing the word, read the word, pray the word, preach the word, see the word in the ordinances. And you can see those in all throughout the New Testament. And if, if those are the five elements we are commanded to have, it implies to us that we're, we're not free to add or take away from those things. What happened in the Old Testament when they added to the worship of God? They dropped dead. What happened when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit in the worship service of God? Now, that was in the early stages of the church as there was a precedent being set by God in the seriousness. Christ tells us what we are supposed to do in worship. When we add or take away, we are in essence telling Christ how he is supposed to be worshipped. Now, Christ doesn't tell us what time of the day we're to gather. He doesn't tell us what kind of building we're to have. He doesn't tell us what the preaching style is. He doesn't tell us how long we're supposed to preach. He doesn't tell us whether we should have air conditioners or not have air conditioners. He doesn't tell us those things. He leaves those up to us by the light of nature to figure out. But he does tell us what he wants in a worship service. That we sing, we read, we pray, we preach, and we see the word. And we're not free to mess with any of those. And so when, when, if we don't have that understanding, so often there's a desire to add to that which Christ prescribes. Guess what happens when you've added to that which Christ prescribes? Disunity. We have to be united. 
there's a fourth key to unity, and that is fellowship. And, I, and if I could show you my notes, I have this written here. Fellowship equals friendship. Fellowship equals friendship. Something happens when you sit down and share a meal with someone. Because when you sit down and share a meal with someone, you have to move beyond that initial awkward conversation where you're trying to think of something to say to someone that you barely know. Because when you're sitting down with someone, you actually have to kind of get to know them or you, or you ignore them. There's something special that happens that builds unity and fellowship. Look at the early church that they did this daily. It's actually irreplaceable to have that wonderful fellowship with a fellow Christian. There's a fifth thing, and that is service. We are, we are taught according to Ephesians 4.11, we are taught according to the purpose of service. In other words, Christ gifted the church with certain offices for the sake of service within the church. And I will say this, much like fellowship unites people, service does too. Because when you're down in the trenches with someone, something special happens. You know what I, I, I love is that I, the, the deacons of this church, we've been in the trenches together for, for over five years. And in five years, we've experienced a lot of things. Do you know how close we are? you know how great our friendship and fellowship is because of that service that we have had continually? It's, it's something that cannot be manufactured. It only is something that happens through service with one another. And that's available to all of us. And there's a final key, and that is having the right understanding of mission. What, it, what is our mission? If we understand what our mission is, then we will not be pulled apart by our personal desires. And so what is, what is our mission? Well, in the prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus tells us what this mission is. He says in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. He goes on in chapter 20 in verse 21 to say this, Jesus said to them again, "Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you." So our mission is to be sent by the Lord Jesus Christ as his disciples, as his ambassadors into the world proclaiming the good news that has set us free and that has united us in this unique bond that cannot ever be destroyed. That is the mission of the church. And when we get away from that mission of the church and let other things come in and pull us and, and pull us away from it, it will inevitably invite disunity within the church. Can we this year, as we approach this new year, can we as a church, as a collected body, can we commit to praying for unity that we would be eager to maintain the unity that was bought with the precious blood of Christ? Can that be our resolution as a, as a church? Can we strive for that as a church? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you.
that you sent your Son to establish unity within the church with his shed blood. We are recipients of your grace and dependent and needy of your grace. Father, we pray that we as a church would be eager to maintain the unity bought by Christ's blood, that we would desire unity, that we would at all costs try to see unity maintained in this local body. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.